Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 417. We got Laura Vanderkam back. This time she is sharing some more time management wisdom as presented in her lovely little fable called Juliet's School of Possibilities. You'll learn one, a handy mantra to keep your choices in perspective. Two, how to better handle your email inbox. And three, the most useful questions for directing your time. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F417. Now here's Laura's story. Laura is the author of several time management and productivity books, such as Off the Clock, Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done, I Know How She Does It, How Successful Women Make the Most of Their Time, and What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast, and 168 Hours, You Have More Time Than You Think. Laura's work has appeared in publications including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, City Journal, Fortune, and Fast Company. She's appeared on numerous television programs, radio segments, and has spoken about time and productivity to audiences of all sizes. Her TED Talk, How to Gain Control of Your Free Time, has been viewed more than 5 million times. She is also the co-host with Sarah Hart Unger of the podcast entitled Best of Both Worlds and a new one called Before Breakfast. So thanks to Laura for spending some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Laura. Laura, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me back. Oh, well, I'm excited to discuss your fable. And uh, But first, I want to hear about the story behind the story. Did you really write it in one month for National Novel Writing Month? Well, I did. One month. That's quick and impressive. Well, it's not that long a book. <laughs> I mean, you could read it certainly in, in about two hours. So it isn't that lengthy in terms of word count. But the truth is it took a lot longer than that to come up with the idea. I had written stuff for National Novel Writing Month, which is when people try to write a 50,000 word novel in the month of November. It's November. It's a whole social media thing. Yeah. You know, where others are growing mustaches, you're writing novels. <laughs> others are growing mustaches. Other people are writing novels. Like thousands of people try this every year. And, and it's great because it's not going to be a good novel at the end of November, but it's going to exist. And you can definitely take something that exists and turn it into something better. That's often much easier to sort of work into your normal life than turning nothing into something. So that challenge can really get people going. It's somewhat like Whole30. People can do anything for 30 days, right? And, and so it's like, well, I only have to go crazy on the writing for 30 days. So I'm, I'm a big fan of National Novel Writing Month. But yeah, no, that's when I cranked it out, November 2017, then spent about a year editing it. 
Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say, as, as I read it, it sure seemed like it took more than a month to create. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the rough draft existed in a month. Uh, everything else took quite a bit of time. That's cool. Well, and so you've written numerous nonfiction books, and, and we've talked about one on a previous occasion. So check that out. It's a fun one. And so what have you found are, are some of the key benefits of writing in a fable format? Well, what I've learned over the years is that people really like stories. When I give speeches, people seldom come up to me afterwards and say, you know, that statistic, that statistic just moved me. <laughs> you know, it's always a story that I've been telling about something that people can remember and then recite back to you with a reasonable amount of accuracy, whereas people can never get the statistics right when they come back to you and try to cite them again. So, you know, I learned that people like stories. That's how we remember information. And certainly if you look at some of the most popular business books of all time, there are things like The One Minute Manager or The Go-Giver series, books like that, that tell a story. And so I thought I'd give it a whirl. My publisher on all my other time management books said that they were looking to commission a few fables and so asked me if I was interested, and I was. So Juliet School of Possibilities is the result. Yes, lovely. I'd love to get your take when you were doing some of the researching and writing. Did anything in particular strike you and your readers, fans, as particularly you know, f as a fascinating and surprising discovery? So Juliet's School of Possibilities is a fiction story and novella. And, and the funny thing is, though, you can probably work a lot of time management themes into a novella. And I think that was sort of surprising for me as I realized, oh, these things do suggest themselves to a storyline. The heroine Riley's life is completely falling apart because of being stretched too thin, trying to respond to everything instantly, having no idea what she should prioritize. So she leaps at whatever is most urgent in front of her. And a lot of people have told me that they can really sympathize with that uh, idea that this is something that they go through themselves. And hopefully in the course of the fable, as fables need to do, she learns how to live life differently from a mentor figure, Juliet. But yeah, I think a lot of people suffer from that feeling that there's just not enough time in the day. And it's not that we're necessarily wasting time. Certainly there's a lot of wasted time in life, but you know, people aren't like watching eight hours of TV a day. They're, they're trying to do mm -hmm. the stuff they're supposed to do. But there's no other way they can do all of it. And so the question is, when you can't do all of it, what do you do? Oh, yeah. Well, so we're going to dig into that. But first, I've got to address what just made me chuckle the most is, so Riley, our heroine, is working for a firm called MB & Company, which is a strategy <laughs> consulting firm. And the top three strategy consulting firms are named McKinsey & Company, Bain & Company, and the Boston Consulting Group. And they're often referred to as MBB as a category. So it's pretty clear that you were alluding... <laughs> <laughs> one of these three and the lifestyle. Tell me a little bit why you chose this as the backdrop here. Yeah, well, I through my own personal life, I have a, a bit more involvement with perhaps one of those consulting firms. People can go look that up if they would like, but <laughs> it is not any of them in particular. But yes, by being MB, it could be any of them. And certainly these places are known for a certain lifestyle that people traveling a lot, being on call for their clients, certainly a very high-paced, very competitive environment, very amazing people that these firms hire too. I mean, certainly incredibly smart, driven people who get to solve very interesting problems. And so I thought it made sense that Riley would be at a place like this because she's a smart, ambitious person who wants to solve the world's problems. And this seems to her like a, a place she can do it while getting paid 
fairly decently at the same time. Of course, the issue for her, the challenge is she feels like she's constantly proving herself. Many of the people who work in the MB type world, the Ivy Leaguers um, and such, and of course she isn't. She's just very, very smart and ambitious. And so she feels like she's constantly proving herself. And that's one reason she feels she has to work harder than everyone else. Well, that was fun for me because I worked at Bain and... Uh, okay. So you're one of the MBs. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I went to the University of Illinois. <laughs> yes. All right. So, so you appreciate this. <laughs> so it was that. Yeah. I'd well, say, I have to say, Pete, did I... Do you think I got it right? Do you think I got this MB consulting company? Was I accurate? I'd say... It was close enough to the mark, certainly, in terms of, hey, like the, the demanding review process and yes. the interesting performance categorization buckets. I was that... going to say, do you have a euphemism for firing people? Because <laughs> there's some funny ones out there. <laughs> well, you know, I thought that was funny. It was like resignation suggested, I think, was yeah, what it was in your book. And so I remember at Bain that was like the top was consistently outperforms. And then there was frequently exceeds expectations. Almost everybody was in the middle, which was called strong contribution. <laughs> Then below there was one called inconsistent contribution, Ooh. which you didn't want to be. Yeah, you don't want to be inconsistent. <laughs> and then there was one even lower, which I, I don't think anyone I know has ever seen it. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So one of the firms has the euphemism counseled to leave, which I just find hilarious. But, <laughs> but yes, resignation suggested is the fictional one. So, yeah. yes. Anyway, so it was a fun read and it was quick and it was inspiring. And so, but you tell me if you would like for readers to take away one thing, what would it be? Well, Riley learns that you do have a lot of choice over how you spend your time. It may not appear that way when there's all this stuff coming at you, but the choice to do anything is a choice not to do something else. And so, in fact, you are always choosing. So the question is, which choices are you going to make? And she is empowered, perhaps by the end of the fable, to make choices that are in line with her long-term goals, both professionally and personally. And so I hope people will think about this. There's a phrase in the book that expectations are infinite. Time is finite. You are always choosing. Choose well. And that pretty much sums it up. We could never do everything that somebody might hope we would do, that we might internally hope we would do. I mean, get 500 emails a day, you're not going to be able to answer them all, right? This is setting yourself up for failure right there. And so given that we are always choosing, how can we learn to choose well? And so I hope that readers will come away with tools to make good choices in their own lives. Yeah, that phrase is what struck me the most. Expectations are infinite. Time is finite. Because, well, it's just so true. <laughs> it's very liberating for me as I reflect on it in that, indeed, the expectations are infinite. And so there is... It's basically just a fool's errand to try to meet them all. You're asking for trouble if you do that. And I don't remember who, who had the quote. It might have been a comedian or someone who said, I don't know the secret to happiness, but the, the key to unhappiness is trying to live up to everyone else's expectations. Who said that? It was good. I don't know, but it's a good quote. Yeah, I definitely. like it. I should know it because it's so good. I mean, that was just connecting to resident because you can think right now. So we got we got two kids under two years old right now in the house. Our home is way less tidy than it's been historically. Go figure. I was just talking with, chatting with my wife about this. And she was like, I don't even know how people like can do it all. And she's like, you know, I just, I don't think they actually do. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they've got helpers or they just accept. All right. This is the squalor we're going to be in for a little while. It is a squall and two under two will definitely do that for you. And a lot of things get deprioritized during that time. That 
we have to learn to be okay with that. I think where people get into trouble is when they decide that they're still going to have the pristine house. For some reason, that should be a priority because if it is going to be a priority, then absolutely nothing else will ever happen because you will be constantly picking up after the these small children who are destroying it. So you might be happier to decide that it just isn't a priority for now. And when the children are 12 or something, maybe you can have a nice house again, but uh, <laughs> for, for now, not so much. And, and that's great. You know, we have to choose what matters to us in any given moment. Certainly. Well, and could you share, what are some of the other top productivity and, and time management implications from the book? Well, I certainly hope that I may steer a few people away from attempting to maintain inbox zero uh, because I, it's funny. A lot of people assume that I must always have an empty inbox because I write about time management in people's minds. Therefore, you must always have an empty inbox. That's not true at all. I mean, I have hundreds of unread messages. I don't archive anything or delete much. So there's thousands of things in there. I just don't really care. In my mind, email is a tool to do your job. It's not your actual job itself. So if I am answering something, great. I'm not, I'm not. And that's fine. I generally would prefer to focus on the projects I have chosen to do and then let email fit in around the edges of that. The issue with attempting to achieve inbox zero constantly is that you can't last in that state because whatever you send out to get yourself down to zero, people will then respond to. (laughs) So you're right back up. And I've seen people on time logs because I had thousands of people track their time for me over the years, like writing down what they're doing, sending in their logs so I can analyze them. And I've seen people attempt to pursue inbox zero in the course of the time they're logging for me. And it's just funny. Some people have put like notes, like I'm at 200. Okay. Inbox 185, inbox 135. Oh, wait, back up to inbox 165. All right. Down to inbox 120. Oh, we're back up to 180. (laughs) And it's just, you'll never get down there. Right. And well, and I love your quote from Wise Juliet in the book. She says something like, I have 24,000 unread emails, and I know they're all unimportant because my assistant has told me that they're not important. Which is a much more efficient way, really. Yeah. I mean, like, would it have been a wise use of Juliet's time to read through those 24,000 emails? Well, probably not, especially since she has someone whose job is to support her professionally. But that's one of the things that Riley, the woman whose life is falling apart, before she meets Juliet hasn't seemed to get her head around. And and I think a lot of us, you know, have this issue too. I mean, I don't have a dedicated assistant, so it's not something that's really an issue for me in this case, but she has an assistant and yet she doesn't really use her because in her mind, she still needs to do everything. Like somebody sends you an email, you must be the one reading it and responding within the first 10 seconds. But of course, if you're doing that, you can't do anything else. Right on. Well, so you say you tackle email around the edges. So does that mean that nowhere in your calendar is there a dedicated processing buffering email time? It just sort of happens, but it happens. No, I mean, I would say there is, but I try to have it be later in the day. Yeah. So this is the key thing that I try not to go through and process all my email in the morning, because that is when I'm most productive, most able to crank out creative stuff. These few weeks, I've been focusing on book launches. There's been a lot more back and forth with people than there would be normally. So some of this has not entirely been happening in the past two weeks. And it's funny, I feel a little cranky about it, actually. Uh, (laughs) But I, I try to have most of my email processing and triaging, as I call it, 
later in the day. So, you know, around like 3.30, I'm, I'm not doing all that much. It's really hard for me to be cranking something out at 3.30 in the afternoon. So that's a really good time to sort of go through the email, delete the stuff I'm not going to respond. If I see something that I want to put some thought into, I'll make a note and put it on the to-do list for the next day or two to go through and have a thoughtful response to that and everything else I either deal with or I don't, but I try not to spend too much time on it. Well, so not to make it all about you and your day and your processes, but yeah, let's go there for a little while. So 3.30 is kind of a, a lower energy time, fine for, for emails. And then when are you done with the work for the day? It depends. I have a couple of children who get off the bus between 4, 4.15. I often am doing car runs to various activities, but I will come back to my work later. Certainly, if there's something I've decided to respond to later, I might do that. I might do a project at night while the big kids are reading in their rooms and the little kids are asleep. So sometimes I do work for between 9 and 10 p.m., which is a strategy that I've found a lot of working parents. I don't know if you've stumbled upon this one yet uh, with your, your two under two, but I mean, the issue a lot of parents face is you're trying to work sort of normal hours and your kids go to bed relatively early you then won't see them very much. Yeah. But if you leave the office at a, a fairly early time, go home, hang out with your kids, and then do those hours that you would have done at the office at night after they go to bed, then you're trading off work time for TV time as opposed to work time for family time. And that's a choice a lot more people are willing to make. I hear you. Well, we're talking about 9 to 10 p.m. work and TV. Now I'm thinking about blue light. I'm thinking about sleep quality. I'm thinking about melatonin. Any pro tips there? Uh, yeah. Well, I definitely think you should end it before too late. And so working what I call the split shift, where some of your work is done at night after the kids go to bed, requires being careful about it. You need to make a to-do list for the time that you're going to work. Like people are like, oh yeah, I'm going to get through my thousand email backlog after the kids go to bed. No, you are not. Just what are the three things that do need to happen before you start work tomorrow? All right, let's do those things. Or what would help set you up for a good morning tomorrow? And then you can you know, triage again at lunch the next day to figure out what you need to do. But those things that have to happen are the things that you have identified as being important. Those are the things you should do. And then you should set an end time. So maybe in past life, you would have left the office at 6.30 and now you're committed to leaving at five. So you should probably only aim to do an hour to an hour and a half in the split shift. Like don't suddenly be the person who's going to be doing three hours at night because that wasn't what you were doing before. Like you don't need to add hours to it. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I try to be off at least 30, 40 minutes before I'd like to go to bed so I can have some time to relax, to read, to talk with my husband, all that stuff. Lovely. Okay. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some of the nice question prompts you've got at the end of the book. Tell me, in your experience working with clients, what have you found to be some of the most useful prompts that really get people thinking and prioritizing and coming to insight, clarity, revelation, like, aha, yes, I should do this or stop doing that. Well, one of my favorite things to ask groups is what they'd like to spend more time doing. And it's funny because, you know, I have people make a, a list on their own. And then afterwards I ask, okay, who put exercising down? And it's like every hand in the room grows up. <laughs> Just, oh, I've never seen that before. Imagine that. People want to spend more time exercising. But sort of nudge people to make a longer list of the things they want to spend more time doing, both personally and professionally. You get some interesting answers and people have good conversations with each other about it. We can usually think of lots of things on the personal front between exercising or reading or spending more time with family or doing certain hobbies. Those are all things that people want to spend more time doing, volunteering. But there actually are professional things that people want to spend more time doing too even if we don't necessarily want to spend more time at work. So people want to mentor younger colleagues. They want to spend more time doing strategic thinking, maybe 
doing things that would establish them as a thought leader, giving speeches or writing papers or otherwise doing that. Reading for work, all those great studies or papers that do come out. It's hard to stay on top of that when you feel like you're constantly responding to emails. So those are things people want to spend more time on, too, or actually developing employees. And so really nudging people to think through those things, too. And one of the prompts in the Juliet School of Possibilities book that somewhat gets at this is the idea of if you're going to spend an extra hour this week on or if you had an extra hour this week to spend on one professional priority, what would it be? And on some level, I think it's a very silly question. And I kind of had an argument with myself about putting it in because the truth is there is nobody who couldn't find one extra hour per week right now in their lives to do whatever it is they say they don't have time to do professionally or personally. And yet it's a good question to prompt people to think about because it immediately gets people to that like, oh, what is that one thing I know would be impactful and I know that I'm skimping on? Same thing in your personal life. If you had one more hour this week to do something in your personal life, what would it be? Immediately we get to that thing that people love, enjoy, find meaningful, and don't feel like they're doing enough with. So it's, so it's a way to quickly get at that concept. Well, yeah, I found that it's something about making it small and bite-sized and approachable with one hour somehow made it easier to answer. Yeah. You know, because it was... I could ask you what you'd do if you went off in the cabin in the woods for three months, but you don't know. <laughs> like right, you have yeah. no idea what you do. I mean, maybe you do, but uh, most people would, I have no idea. I'd, I'd probably watch TV. <laughs> Does my cabin have cable? I don't know. Whereas th- that one hour is much more manageable. So it just, it makes it all the more clear in terms of, okay, that's what I want to go do. That's what I want to not do. And so I, I'd like to hear what then, once you've identified the activity you'd like to do some more of or some less of, is the tends to be the very next step for people to making that come to life. Yeah, well, then you need to figure out how you can find space for this in the life that you currently have. And I really do believe that anyone can find the space. I know people are busy. They have lots of commitments. But I always talk through this story of of the lady who kept a time log for me. And in the course of her time log week, her water heater broke, which created this massive flood in her basement. And magically enough, she found the time to deal with it. And so it's the same thing. Like If you treated this priority for you as as the equivalent of having water all over your basement, you would probably find the time for it. For most people, you know, mornings are good. This tends to be time that the emergencies have yet to arise. Although I would also challenge people that you create the sense of emergency by plugging into things like your inbox. So maybe you could show up at work and just do whatever the priority is for an hour and then go into your inbox. It might be a weekend morning if it's something that's personally important to you. People say, well, you know, I want to work on creative writing and I just want to find one hour in my week to do it. And I'm sure you can like, you know, get up a little bit early on the weekend or even if you have two young kids as you do, hopefully they nap at some point. Maybe you can use nap time, not for chores, but for doing some creative adult fulfilling thing or after they go to bed at night or maybe trading off with a, a spouse, you know, that each of you gets two hours on Sunday afternoon to do your thing and you trade off and then you're each getting a chance to have that extra hour in your life. So it doesn't have to be too complicated. Well, Laura, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Yeah, well, I mean, I hope uh, listeners might check out this fable. It's I know it's a little bit different. I was worried about this, of asking my readers who I know love just productivity tips, straightforward productivity tips to, to give it a chance. But as I said, people really do like stories. And it's so much easier to remember lessons when they come in the form of a story. And I, I've certainly found that as I read things. And, and so sometimes it's things we know, but it's good to be reminded of them. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote? So that you find inspiring. I wrote this uh, choose well quote in my book, and I actually got those words choose well engraved on a bracelet that I wear. 
Juliet wears a bracelet that says choose well. And so, well, if it's good enough for her, maybe it's good enough for me. (laughs) So I'm walking around with a bracelet saying choose well. It's reminding me in any given moment that I do have a choice of how I spend my time and I should think about it. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? So writing nonfiction books, I've come across all sorts of fascinating studies. My favorite are always the ones where the researchers clearly have a sense of humor. So I read about one not long ago where uh, how people react when they feel rushed and late. And these researchers actually set up seminary students to go deliver a sermon on the Good Samaritan who is in the Bible because he stopped to help a wounded man. They then told some of these seminary students that they were late to deliver their talks. And those seminary students were actually highly likely to rush right past an injured man lying on the ground because they were late to deliver their talks. So, well, you know, that's pretty funny. It doesn't say good things about human nature, but it's humorous. Well, and I think, well, call me an optimist, but I have reflected on that study at length. And my hopeful spin on the matter <laughs> is that if we are being selfish jerks, it's not because we are full of malice or spite or selfish or just like sheer self-absorption, but rather we just feel kind of busy. Yeah. Well. And, and so if, if we can solve that problem, well, then we can make the world a better place. Laura, are you we inspired make- by my vision? <laughs> Well, then we need to tell ourselves, I have all the time in the world, right? So I, I could deal with this. Yeah, no, well, it's the banality of, of evil. So people seldom set out to, to do horrible things. It's it just sort of one small choice leads to another. So That's right. So chill out and everyone will be better off. <laughs> and how about a favorite book? I probably said this last time I was on, but I'm still a big fan of Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. I reread that once a year. It's just a very evocative prose and packs so much into just 200 pages. And so anyone who wants to write a lot in a quick book would do well to read that. And a favorite tool? So I've really been reflecting on the the wonders of Uber of late. <laughs> just in years past, when I, when I started giving speeches, it was always just a hassle to go anywhere other than your hotel in the airport. If you were in a town that wasn't like New York or Chicago, that just there's no taxis in most smaller towns. And now you can get everywhere. Like you can go try a restaurant just because, you know, you're not, it's not this huge, horrible thing attempting to get back. And a favorite habit? Favorite habit. Well, I've recently started putting some strength training into my life. I kept saying I wanted to do it. It was probably one of those things I would have said I would have done if I had more time, which again, I know is a ridiculous question because I do have plenty of time. I just wasn't doing it. But what I realized is that I needed a good cue in my day that now was the time to do this. And so the way my mornings are currently structured, some days I bring my middle schooler to school and then I come back and I have about 10, 15 minutes before I need to get the middle kids out to the bus stop. And so that's my time. I had been just like deleting emails and feeling like, oh, well, I can't use this time. It's too small. Or maybe I could read, but I feel like I should be working. And now I'm like, I just go into my office and throw around a kettlebell and do some resistance bands, do some plank poses. And I've done it by the time it's time to get the kids out to the bus. Awesome. And how about a favorite nugget, something you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? Yeah. So I use that phrase, I have all the time in the world that we need to be telling ourselves. And and that's one that's in the book that uh, Juliet says several times, you know, I have all the time in the world. And I've been thinking about it. it. It is such a good mindset to have. It isn't actually true. I mean, everyone's time is limited and we have many things that are on our plates that we need to do, various obligations we've taken on at various points. But we're so much better off believing that we have all the time in the world because whenever you have a thesis, you look for evidence to support it. 
And, you know, somebody who feels like they have all the time in the world isn't going to race past the injured person, right? Somebody who has all the time in the world is actually going to have a conversation with an employee who's come to you to talk about something very important. Somebody who has all the time in the world is going to sit at the breakfast table for five minutes longer when a kid really wants to talk. Whereas somebody who doesn't have all the time in the world might rush off and they would really miss out. So better to have that phrase in your mind rather than saying, I'm so busy, I have no time for anything. Because if that's your story, then you certainly look for evidence to support it. Well, so I like that a lot. And it sure feels better having that in my brain than the opposite. Could you share some of the, the most compelling evidence that makes that kind of true? For example, I could think that I have all the time in the world because... The amount of time required to do a given task is highly compressible. Like you could do a task in, in 20 hours or one hour and you can outsource, automate, etc. that thing. So in, in that sense, time can fold and become, I, I feel like the matrix right now. <laughs> <laughs> time can fold and stretch and, and make uh, climb in and out of it or whatever it is we do with our matrix. Yes. No, time is a funny thing and, and it is all about our impressions of it. And one thing I encourage people to do is to celebrate the time dividends that they have in their lives. I mean, there's certain things we do that are much easier for us now than were in the past. Maybe it's a skill like, I don't know, writing a, an article for me is very quick or figuring out recording a, a podcast can be done relatively quickly. I don't have to spend a ton of time preparing for it or even you know, giving a speech. I have a basic outline, which I then change for different groups, but it, I know the stuff that might go in there and I cycle through different things depending on who I'm talking to. Writing the speech originally took quite a bit of time and effort, but now I have it. I have it memorized. And so you reap the benefits of doing it. And so sometimes if I'm feeling like, oh, I don't know that I did all that much this week, I'm like, well, I didn't spend 30 hours writing a speech because I didn't need to, right? So I, like, I should celebrate that fact. And so I encourage people to recognize those time dividends in their own lives. Oh, right. We talk about it being quicker now than it used to be. That reminds me that Steven Landsberg is an economist and, and we had him we had him on the show and he had a talk all about how just just the insane amount of time it would take to, say, do laundry, like, I don't know, in the 1920s. Oh, yeah. It's just massive. And so now, you know, we can do it, you know, pretty darn quick with uh, washers and dryers. I have a washer-dryer combo in one tub. Oh, so wow. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that is pretty and, cool. <laughs> but that kind of really does provide some good evidence for having all the time in the world because it's like, well, people survived and lived their lives in a pre-laundry machine world. So they were scrubbing on those washboards. Yeah. Right? You know, it was, it was tough work. And in a pre-internet world, in a pre-smartphone world, they were getting by just fine. And now we have all these time-saving devices. And, and what's intriguing is instead of us just hanging out in leisure for three times as many hours in our, our week's we managed to still do lots of work. <laughs> Although less than in the past. So this is a little known fact, but the, the average work week has in fact declined over the past two generations. So people like to think they're more overworked than ever, but on the whole society-wide, it is not true. Now, is that worldwide and U.S.? I know it's U.S. But as people move out of hard manual labor, like, I mean, I don't realize how many hours it takes to run a farm. It's a lot. And also, there's different kinds of people in the workforce now, too. As more women have gone into the workforce, women in general tend to go into jobs and fields and also in the way they make their choices, uh, tend to log fewer hours working for pay than men do. They log more hours, obviously, in childcare and housework. So the overall work level market and non-market is exactly the same. But because there's more women in the workforce, that lowers the, the overall time, too. 
And Laura, folks who want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? So I would ask them to come visit my website, which is lauravandercam.com. So I blog most days there. Uh, you can read that. And you can find out about all my books and hope people will come check it out. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Well, I always challenge people to try tracking their time. I mean, at least for just a few days to see where the time really goes. Some people do this automatically at work because they're lawyers or accountants or other people who who have to do it. But if you're not in that camp, just try it because it's enlightening to see where the time really goes and try and do it outside of work as well. Because sometimes we've been telling ourselves, you know, oh, I have no time to join that softball team or something. And you track your time and say, well, actually, you know, on Thursday nights, I'm not doing much of consequence. Maybe I could join that softball team that practices then. And I promise you'll feel a lot better about life if you do. Oh, Laura, this has been so much fun. Thank you. And and good luck with the book and all your adventures. Thank you so much. I really love that mantra from the book. Expectations are infinite. Time is finite. I have found that to be particularly comforting when I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm behind on this and this and this. I'm going to be disappointing that person with this thing. And I'm behind on this thing. It's like, you know what? Expectations are infinite. You're always going to be disappointing somebody or yourself on some dimension. That's okay as long as you're really focused in on what truly is is most important and matters and those things are, are getting handled. So I found that encouraging. Yep, there's some things that I'm letting slide and I'm letting them slide deliberately and I will not meet those infinite expectations. And I got no problem with that. Feels good. So thanks, Laura, for that tidbit. Hope you dug that and more. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep417. And next up, you have another episode that uh, I think you'll get a real kick out of. It does some deep thinking in terms of our relationships and beliefs about work and hustling. And if you're feeling lazy or your worth is tied to your productivity, man, we dig into the history and anthropology and psychology of that. Hope to catch you there. Push subscribe to catch it and more. It's Rahaf Harfoush talking about her book, Hustle and Float, and all these interesting things that could change the very way you think about you and work forever. I know it's bold, but I really believe it. So hope you catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.